0: Good morning, everybody. So this morning we will be reading from Romans chapter 9, verses 1 through 5. I speak the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience confirms it through the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race, the people of Israel. Theirs is the adoption to sonship. There's the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship, and the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs, and from them is traced the human ancestry of the Messiah, who is God over all, forever praised. Amen. All right. Thank you very much. Oh, I'll get it. Uh, How's everybody doing? Everybody enjoyed the Super Bowl last week? Sports people? Like it? I did see that there's a new Jesus coming out just joking. I'm joking. It's a a joke about the commercial. I'm still under contract with my old one, but um, it's Covenant. Um, All right. So, oh, I have a couple things to say before we get going. Um, uh, two things. First off, um, for those of you who want to know the need of, needs of the church whenever we come into need, uh, we're in a bit of financial need right now. We're getting down there, getting pretty low in the accounts. Um, I think that's going to ease up in the coming months. However, right now, it's, it's close, walking on the edge. Um, but, you know, we have people that we pay for for, their, uh, for uh, mental health counseling. For, uh, we help people with all kinds of things, and we send money to missionaries and stuff like that. So just want to let you know the need. Again, I always say, if you find a suitcase full of money, tell the police first, but if nobody claims it, bring it over here, um, and, uh, and, and we'll put it to work. And uh, second, this is going to be weird, I shouldn't. Have, I just feel weird about it, but uh, those little pockets in front of your chairs, do me a favor, don't stuff garbage in those, because <laughs> there's another church that comes in after us, and they meet. And then me and the elders would kind of go through and we'd kind of pull all the snot rags out and stuff. Um, also, your coffee cups, like, take them back, because sometimes, you know, they come in, I want it to feel, like, nice and clean for them, like it's their space, too. Um, so just think about that. Like, grab your stuff on your way out. Um, okay. So I'm going to ju- uh, have a word of prayer with you, and one more thing before we, get, before we jump into that, though. This week, again, uh, this Wednesday, Ash Wednesday, starts the, the 40-day season of Lent, leading all the way up to uh, Easter Sunday. Um, if you grew up low church Baptist like I did, you didn't really pay attention to that. Um, but over the years, i found traditions to be very important in my life to keep me sort of, sort of, you know, tune the knobs, right, on, on my spirituality, if you will. And so uh, I wanted to give you a couple um, suggestions. Typically... Um, Christians commit to a specific discipline during this time for 40 days. Typically, they pick something important to you and, and forego it for those 40 days, sort of like signifying Jesus' uh, temptations in the wilderness. Um, and so, if you were thinking about fasting from something, and then you, there was one thing and you were like, not that, though. That's probably the one. Um <laughs> And so, like, just ponder that. And those of you who are looking for something to keep you focused and keep some reading, I'll, I'll tell you what me and my wife are doing. My wife is reading uh, Brian Zahn's *The Unvarnished Genius Jesus*. I say genius? <laughs> *The Unvarnished Jesus*, forty-day um, sort of Lenten reading. Um, we start with the introduction. Read that before you get to Wednesday, if that's yours. Um, and then I'm doing this one, uh, Fleming Rutledge. You can't read; it's all red. Um, *The Crucifixion: Understanding the Death of Christ*. This one's a normal length. This one's like 600 pages. So those of you who are with me over here, let me know. Um, and this one also has the Unvarnished Jesus. If you're looking for something as a house church, it also has like suggested um, sort of meal gatherings, sort of like a, a kind of mini festival kind of things to, to mark the times of the journey to the cross. So uh, we're leaning into that a bit this year. We'll, we'll have some artwork around for people to look at and ponder. We'll talk about that as we go. Um, and that's what I got for you now. Let's pray. And then let's jump into the passage. Let's pray. Father, thank you for, first off, thank you for letting me do this, for having a place where we can come together as, as a family and and uh, and read the ancient writings of your people and ponder what what likeness means in our context, of the things that they were going through and how they responded with, what is the Christlike thing to do in this situation? Thank you for their example. I pray that we would be able to take those principles and bring them into our life and and ask the same questions, um, and that the answers that we receive would, would be led by your spirit, not our culture, not anything else, but, but what you are doing here uh, in our lives. Um, I pray that uh, uh, we would begin right now to submit to you, Jesus, that we would submit to you in this morning, um, that you would show us something that we need to see, um, let, us, uh, let us receive it, whatever the gift you have for us is. Thank you for what you're doing in here, out there, in the world. Thank you for the things that we're seeing, the way you're moving. I just, um, I pray that somehow we would be a part of uh, sort of the great undoing and redoing that you, that, that you are, are working on. Thank you, Father. In your name. Amen. All right. So, uh, we're in Romans. Um, let, me, let, me, let me start over again. Romans 1 over here, Romans 16 over here. We've been doing the book backwards, for those of you who are just visiting. Um, I think this is session 10, Michael? I'm not sure. Maybe 11. Um, What? 12? Wow, making progress. Um, So we started in chapter 16 because... Uh, I made a whole argument about it. Go back and listen to the first one. But if you read the end of the book first, you get the context of the story. There's a list of people. You learn who they are. And then you can read the story for what it was meant to be. You understand the problem. So we did 12, and then we did, I'm sorry, we did 16, and then we did uh, 12 through 16. Now, last week we wrapped up 15, and now we're starting at chapter 9. We're going to go chapter 9 to 11, and then we're going to go back, start at chapter 1, and end at chapter 8. That's how I argue you should read this particular text. Um... In the ancient world, they didn't write the same as we do, and stuff got shifted around. If you read it from front to end, you get exhausted. And where do you get exhausted? Right around here, 9 through 11. This is the hard part. This is the part where people will start reading, and they're like, yeah, I don't understand any of this, and I'm done. Um, And so this morning, I'm not going to go real far into the text. I literally just have an intro to chapter 9, and I'm going to give you some context. I'm going to talk about narrative. I'm going to try to give you sort of a lens through which to read 9 through 11, uh, and then we can uh, dive into that together. So... Um so yeah this is the exhausting part. So so let me talk to you about chapter about uh what happened at the end of chapter 15 that we that we have not yet addressed. So at the end of chapter 15 there is this section. It goes from um let's say let, let's let's say it starts at verse uh 22 or so, 23 and it goes down till about verse 33 and it's Subtitles of it usually say something like Paul's Travel Plans or something like that. If you're using the NIV, it says Paul's Travel Plans. So what we have there is a missionary letter. It's the same thing I receive all the time from missionaries all over the world that we send out and that we support. Um, they write a letter saying, hey, here's, here's where I've been here's what I've been doing, here's how your money was used uh, to bring about equity and justice and freedom and salvation and, and uh, to lift up those who are, who are low. Um, and so what we have here in fifteen, chapter 15, verse 23 through 33, is one of those missionary letters. He lays it all out, where he's been and, and what he's done. But from there, um, when you come read chapter 9 through 11, you see something very interesting. Chapters 9 through 11 are filled with questions, I'm not going to read them all. Here's a short list of the questions that are popping up. I went through the passage and I pulled them all out and I put them all on a big thing. There's question after question after question after question after question, and the question that I have about the questions is who's asking the questions. Um, so here's where here's here's where I'm at. Here's the way I understand it. And again, I'm not like the end all authority on the Bible. Don't treat me like that. I I'm 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 doing the best I can. I'm going to bring this to you and I want you to try and see it as well. Um, But I agree with the Bible scholars who say this, and so here's what they say. Um, In Paul's missionary journeys that we read about in chapter 15, we know from the book of Acts that what Paul does is Paul and his associates go into a city, a Gentile city, but they first go to the synagogue of that city, because there's always uh, this Jewish diaspora that was scattered around after they were kicked out of Rome. And so he goes to the synagogue, and he talks to the Jewish people there about what he believes God is doing through Jesus. He's bringing the Gentiles in again. Like I said last week, this was Paul's main thing. God is bringing the Gentiles in, and that is Paul's main message. Um, And as he's doing this, everywhere he goes, the Jews have a lot of questions. They have questions about, "Well, they hold on, are we being replaced? Like, like what's going? That doesn't seem just. Look at the very first question. That's not just. We were told from the very beginning what God was going to do, and what you're saying is the thing we've been waiting for is actually not going to happen, and then God's going to do it with Gentiles. Is that what you're saying? Uh, And they feel cheated, they feel lied to, they feel, they have very strong feelings about all of this. And so, Romans chapter 9 through 11 is, I would argue, a gathering of all the questions that popped up during the missionary journey. And they're brought together. Um, it's, It's the same, some of these questions are the same ones that are asked in the city of Corinth. And some of them are the same questions that are asked in Ephesus and Galatia, and this is kind of how we put this all together, like, oh, he's he's gathering all the questions that they ever had. And so what they have is, imagine them gathered together, the Jews on one side, the Jewish Christians and the, the Gentile Christians on the other, and... And Paul's letter is coming to them through the face of Phoebe. She's the reader, the preacher, as she goes along. Paul tells us this at the very end. He sends her as the courier, and a courier had a specific job in the first century, which was to learn and perform the letter the same way that Paul would have. Uh, he would teach her everything to do, and, and then she would also learn all the theology and be able to answer all the questions. So she's a preacher. Paul sent her. Um, and so she goes, and she's going house church to house church to house church, um, teaching all these things. And as she's preaching, you can imagine these questions being called out. You can imagine someone on, on the Jewish side yelling out, well, then is God unjust? Why does God still blame us for what happened? And so what they're revealing is all their insecurities, all their questions that they have about all this. It doesn't make sense to them. What God is doing doesn't make sense. Why is God bringing Gentiles in? And Phoebe has to answer all of these questions. Now, I'm not sure if this part would have been read and performed or if, she, if it's a list of questions there in the letter that she, um, sort of like a White House like notebook, right? Someone asks a question, you just flip up the notebook and you hit it and you start spouting off your politics, right? It's sort of, maybe it's something like that where somebody would ask a question and she had already memorized the whole thing and so she would be able to just go from there. Uh, we're not really sure. Um, I like to just think that she's pointing at different people and saying, but I know what you're thinking. And I know what you're thinking here too. And I know what you're thinking here too. And then preaching. So like, this is a part where a lot of work is being done in, in 9 through 11. And so it's confusing when you read it. It's a little confusing. Hey, if my, is my battery dying? We're good, okay. Um, so it's a little confusing as they go. So there's all kinds of questions that they have. So over time, Paul anticipates all these, and he writes them all down here. Now, if we want to really understand, um, so okay, so basically what I'm going to do is I'm going to, instead of just going through the book like I have been doing with, with 12 through 16, I'm going to focus on the questions, because I think the questions have a lot of relevance to what we're doing today, to a lot of, um, oh, quick survey, like how many of you have gone through at least a little bit of deconstruction in your life, of your faith? Yeah, okay. Um, and, and, and so we, we've all come to a place where we've been disillusioned, and we've awakened to like, okay, I, I'm, not, I'm not sure that I was given the right information, I'm not sure that I've been lied to, I'm not really sure what this is, I know what to do with this. Um, this is the part where they are dealing with their questions. I think this is a very important part. But in order to understand their questions, we first need to understand their story, their narrative. Because I think a lot of American evangelicals have also been given picture, a picture of Jewish theology that is not accurate. They didn't follow the law to go to heaven. None of that is real. They weren't even legalistic. Um, they were what's called a covenant gnomism. They, they trusted in the covenant that God had given them at the very beginning and they followed the law to remain in the covenant. It has nothing to do with going to heaven when they die. It, it was so that the world would be made right through, the, through God's work through them. So this morning, I'm gonna lay, about, lay out a little bit of the narrative uh, and I'm gonna start um, by talking about sort of the meaning-making narrative because every one of you has what's called a meaning-making narrative. A meaning-making narrative is a story that you tell yourself about your life that helps you make sense of all the pieces. Um, if you've ever found yourself saying, you know what, I think everything I've been through has led up to this moment to do this thing. We've all said this at some point, right? Like That's called a meaning-making narrative. All this random stuff that happened throughout your life doesn't seem connected in any way until it does, and you push it together into a story, and you say, oh, here's the point of the whole thing. That's your meaning-making narrative. People look back through their history, Israel looked back through their history, and they interpreted it. What does it all mean? Okay, so uh, when it comes to your reading, you read any author best when you understand that author's meaning-making narrative, and that's how you had to read Romans nine through eleven because Romans nine through eleven, Paul lays out his meaning-making narrative. Um, Try not to say that phrase again. Uh, And 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 so like everyone's theological narrative is unique to their people. You may not realize this, but I have a shirt. Sometimes I wear it, and it says, "All theology has an adjective." Nobody has ever laughed at the joke, ever. But here's the joke. Like, some people just call what they do theology. But it's not just theology. It's the theology of your specific people and context. Um, you might notice that sometimes white evangelical men will talk about theology, and then we will say, and then black theology, as if it's something else. It has its, As if my theology doesn't have an adjective, does. It absolutely has an adjective. It's my perspective on things. And to just call it theology is not really fair. Uh, Every theology has an adjective. Your theology has an adjective. It has a place where it came from. And if you go somewhere else in the world and you read it like that there, it's not going to make any sense to them. Christianity is different wherever you go. Um, And most of us have no idea just how different Christianity can be in different places. And so uh, everyone's narrative is unique to their people. And this is also true of the Bible. In the Bible. You have all these different authors, um, and each one of them is in a different time period, a different place, a different part of the Roman Empire. Some are closer to Jerusalem, some are farther away, and some are in these sort of pagan places. And, and everyone, all of that plays into how they read the text and how they respond. To the gospel. If you ask what salvation is to different people throughout time period, you're going to get a different answer. If you ask white evangelicals what, what salvation looks like to them, you're going to get a different answer than if you were to ask black evangelicals what salvation looks like to them because of their history of oppression and slavery. So like you go back and their theology takes them to different places and different things depending on what their people need. Um, on what they believe God is doing in their place. And no one is immune to this. Everyone is reading into the text, every one of us. And so there is diversity of voices in the Bible as well, telling the story of God and and what it means for them. So I want to talk about the the narrative, the uh, diversity of the New Testament period. So I'm going to start off uh, with some examples. Acts chapter 7, you see Stephen being stoned. And they're killing him because he's telling the story of God in a way that they do not approve of. He has one narrative, they have another. And as he tells the story of God, he says one line that makes them very, very, very mad. He says this, but our ancestors refused to obey him. Talking about Yahweh in the desert with the law. Instead, they rejected him and in their their hearts turned back to Egypt. So they wanted to go back to the idolatry and worship the gods of Egypt. And so Stephen is arguing that the people rebelled against God. And that's why. Uh, things didn't go well for them. That's why they left the law. That's why they left the Torah. That's why they ended up in exile. He says, it was the hardness of our hearts. It was our sin and our, ev- our, our th- evil hearts, okay? But if you read other contemporary writings of that period, uh, there's, there's a collection of books that we called pseudepigrapha Pseudo meaning, like not really. Grapha meaning writing. Like it's, it's people who would write a book from the perspective of a historical patriarchal figure and make an argument from their point of view. So you have you have a book like First Enoch. And in the book of First Enoch, uh, written between the Old Testament and the New Testament, there's some fascinating literature. And, and in this book, it's a retelling of sort of the five, first five books of the Bible, but with animals, like, like for children or something. Like It's, it's fascinating. Um, uh, so um, hold on. Let me sort of lay this out for you a little bit of what's going on there. Um, Israel is told with animals, Israel are sheep, the Egyptians are wolves. There is a leader sheep who walks on two legs and leads them up the path of the mountain. But at some point, they're walking up the mountain, the sheep, following the, the up-tall walking sheep, uh, and they go blind, they still get sick, and they start going blind, and they wander off the path. Obviously, there's an argument there that they're making about themselves as they write this. And if you read the book of First Enoch, it makes its own argument. It says, in chapter 82, verse 52, it says, the sheep began to grow blind and to wander from the path that he had showed them. We have two different arguments now. We have the people grew angry at God and hated him and wanted their idols, and so they rebelled against God and ran away. And then you have the Is- the Israel, the Jews, being very sympathetic to their own view and saying, no, 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 we didn't know, we didn't see. Sort of like when you talk to a lot of evangelicals and deconstructivists today. Like some people will accuse you of rebelling and others that understand you that have been where you are, those of us who have actually struggled in our history with agnosticism. We know you're not being rebellious. Uh, we think you were blind before and now your eyes are being opened and now you can see the problems and a lot of us think you're probably relatively justified in your walking away of the whole thing and trying to take the whole thing down because you see the problems inherent in it. In the Bible and and around the Bible, you have these kinds of conversations going on and happening. Um, And then you look at Jesus. What position did Jesus take? Look at Matthew 9, 36. It says that Jesus saw them, and he saw them, and they were like sheep without a shepherd. Huh. He's sort of chiming into the current contextual conversations of the day. And you go a little farther, Luke 23, 34. Father, forgive them. He's hanging on the cross while they're crucifying him. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. He doesn't say, Father, forgive them. They're in open rebellion against you. Give them a little more time before you wipe them out and throw them in the lake of fire. He didn't say any of that. He they forgive them. They don't, they don't really know what they're doing. The information that they have is wrong. What they've been given doesn't work. So Jesus tends to take the most empathetic view possible. It's almost like you can make a choice on how you interpret things. And you can choose to interpret the Bible in the most loving way possible. And that seems to be what Jesus does. When he looks at the text. Now, uh, so Matthew seems to be making the same argument in 27 uh, that sort of the the contemporaries of their day were making, which is slightly different than what Peter is making. I had um, my professor uh, once told me, look, the New Testament, it's like gathering 12 people together around a table and looking at them and saying, hey, tell me what salvation means to you. And they write it down and you take all their letters, and you don't, try to, you don't try to line them all up and make them all the same thing. You package them all together in a book, and you send them out into the world and say, here's what we have so far. Tell your story as well. Tell the story of what Jesus is doing. And so we we're reading the text of our brothers and sisters and their journey alongside of our journey. And it's, very, very, it's a very different way to understand the text. There's conversation. People like, oh, so you think there's disagreement? I, there's conversation. There are places where Paul says, women aren't gonna preach, here and then, there's places where Paul sends women to preach. The question is why. There's conversation happening in the text. We can join the conversation that is happening at any point in time. Um, but really, uh, I say all this to emphasize that there's diversity of opinion in the minds of of these different storytellers in and around the scriptures about the mindset of God's people. Despite telling the same story, they seem to come to different conclusions sometimes about the heart of God and what God is doing in different places. Uh, and then. Some see the people turning away from God's plan, and they say they're simply blind, and others say, you stiff-necked people, you always resist the Holy Spirit, and you're evil and stubborn, Um, and perhaps sometimes we need a little bit of rebuke, but sometimes we need empathy, and I think God knows when to apply what. Um, But the fact is, we tell history to impute meaning, always, meaning and plot, and we reimagine our current situation and how to move out of it. we, we tell our story as a way of making sense of where we are currently heading towards. We have to have a thing that makes sense. We have to look back at our life and, and say, here's the path it took and it led me to here. So naturally, I need to go this way. Otherwise, we wander aimlessly. And so what I want to do is I want to first, before we get into really the passages, um, uh, with all the questions this week I just want to lay out Paul's narrative that he lays out here um, if you want to read more about this I have, I'll have uh, footnotes in the top right corner for um, the specific like, literature that I'm using to show you this um, but I, I can summarize it I think up in, in, in three or four slides so here we go and, and I drew it and it's bad okay <laughs> So and I accidentally did a white background I don't know why it wasn't thinking I forgot that I have a black background so anyways it's nice and wow it's nice and bright okay Um, So, Paul's narrative of salvation that he and the Jews in in, in Romans 9 through 11 seem to sort of coalesce around and and, and understand together is really not that difficult. And it's sort of like, uh, you know those Russian nesting dolls? You open one, there's another one inside. It sort of works like that. It's all sort of packaged in another thing to help it make sense. So it starts off with a very simple plot, the main plot, humanity's plot. Uh, mankind's position of authority. God creates humanity at the end of creation and crowns it with humanity and says, you will be in charge of bringing all of creation to flourish under my direct direction. So You're not designed to have kings over you and presidents over you. You were designed to follow the king, Yahweh, now manifest in Jesus. This is how they believed. They were supposed to follow God, and that's why God's like, no, you're not gonna have other kings. And they're like, but we want them. He's like, you're not gonna like it. And and then it goes bad. Um, And so... This is the main plot. Mankind's position of authority put here to bring creation to flourish as the image of God, the Imago Dei. It's like an ancient idol that you would make and put in a garden, uh, in a temple garden, in an ancient temple to say, like, this is what God looks like. That's why we're here. Um, So this is the plan that is laid out at the very beginning. As they understand it, mankind fails to do this. We get very violent. uh, We get selfish. We have... um, Idols that, that, we, that we chase. We fail to live out the specific calling by practicing idolatry, uh, idolatry, disrupting the order of creation, serving other kinds of rulers instead of God directly, and humanity's sin causes us to fail in our mission. So we become flawed, broken humans. God has a plan. God responds to that with a subplot. Subplot number one, God's response to mankind, Israel. God says, you know what I'm going to do? Someone needs to see how this is done, and so I'm going to pick one particular group of people, and I'm going to elect them. That is the con- that, that's what election is in the Bible. It's God choosing a people to do God's work. He's not choosing a people to f- fly off to a Gnostic disembodied heaven somewhere. He's choosing a people to do God's work in the world. Um, and so he chooses Israel, and he, gives, and he, and he tells Israel, uh, remember, he chooses Israel long before they get to Sinai. They're his people. There's a big gap between the two. He doesn't give them the law right up front. He gives them an identity. Uh, And he says, follow me. And so Israel's intended to be a people through whom uh, God will be displayed as separate from the rest of creation and set the world to rights through living in the originally intended way. So they are going to live out mankind's original position of authority. That's what they're gonna do. They're gonna work to bring a blessing to everyone around them, to bring the world to flourish, and this is their role in the world. Um, And Israel, however... Fails as well. Israel falls. And so uh, they do the same thing everyone else does. They, they worship idols. They, they want to go back to Egypt. They, they choose comfort over like holiness. And so God responds again. Subplot number two. Subplot so number two is God responds to Israel by giving them the Torah, which is the law of Israel. Now, this is a very specific response. The Torah is meant to assist Israel in setting them apart and pressing them on towards their intended mission. So he says, okay, I'm just gonna give you sort of an instruction manual. Just do this. Just read it, memorize it, do it. It's gonna explain my hearts. It's gonna explain um, how I desire for a, a community to be whole and healthy. And so whenever there's sickness and illness and um, infection and stuff, you're gonna move them out of the camp so that God's people can remain holy. And, and all of it is meant to teach them how to live. You're gonna look different. Your hair's gonna be cut different. Your, your, your gardens are gonna look different. The things you eat are gonna be different. You're going to be different so that the world looks at you and says, huh, They're different, and they're going to pay attention to what you're doing, and they'll see God when they do. But uh, the law fails as well. Oops, sorry. No, don't look at that yet. The law fails as well because the law, um, the Torah assists Israel in its mission, but it's also a stumbling block to them. This is how Paul described it. It's a stumbling block uh, to them because it lays out specific punishments for disobedience, if you do this and this and this and this, this happens. If you do this, and it's always sort of um, away from the center. So like those who are, are sick or with a leprosy, out of the camp. But Israel, if all of Israel sort of violates God, then all of Israel moves away from God into exile. And then God is there beckoning everyone to come back and so this is sort of how they're they're viewing all of this in their story um and so the torah assists israel it does a pretty good job of like sort of being a crutch for them to walk on but it also reveals their sin they realize just how sinful they are and unlike god that they actually are um and it's sort of they end up in exile over and over and over and and it sort of enslaves them in this law kind of thing uh law punishment sort of law and order kind of thing and so the solution again the third final solution here is is the messiah the Messiah is what God brings into it. He says, this is it. This is, this is the last thing that I've come up with that, that we're going to do. And, and so this is how they understand it. The Messiah would be the one who would fulfill the very first one, the very top on the main plot of Israel's story, and by doing so would fulfill all the others as well. So by being exactly how humans are supposed to be, he's in control over nature, right? He's calming seas and all kinds of stuff. And then he's also... Um, uh, He's, he's pulling fish out of the thing and pulling coins out of their mouth. Like, all these things are, are, are meant to signify that like Jesus is the way that humans were designed to live. This is the way God, he's the perfect imago Dei, image of God. And in this, he also fulfills the Torah, Represent. he lives by the heart of the Torah. You can look at him and you can see exactly what God intended. Uh, that's the argument of the New Testament of the book of John of the book of Hebrews and he also fulfills uh, God's response fulfills Israel he's the perfect Israelite remains perfectly faithful to the whole thing so Jesus completes all of this and sets the world to rights as they understand it and ushers in a whole new kingdom now this is how they believe things are going to be going to be done but the Jewish Christians did not believe the Messiah had come yet but Paul comes and tells them but he did it was Jesus and what Jesus is actually doing is becoming king of all. The thing Elijah and Elisha talked about in bringing the Gentiles in. And this is where all the problems begin to erupt because Paul begins to argue that Jesus is that Messiah and Jesus has accomplished all of this. But of course, if that's true, then why are they still living in Rome, oppressed by the Romans? Why is the Holy Land, all of Judea, still under Roman oppression? Why are they still in exile? Why? Why? If Jesus took their exile upon himself, the punishment from the Torah was exile. And so Jesus hangs on the cross and he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I think there's a misnomer sometimes when we talk about Jesus took our sins upon the cross. Yes, but in the minds of the Jewish people, it was specifically the sins of the Jewish people against the Torah because they had failed to be God's people. And it gets a little complicated and there's a lot to talk about there. But when the Bible says this, he's not necessarily talking about Gentiles. He's talking about the Jewish people. He's saying, I became what you, were, what you were always meant to be, and now the Gentiles are welcomed in. And they don't, need, they don't come in by law, by being good. They come in simply by faith. Because it's all been evened out, and they're welcome in now. All the work has been done. But when you do this, they have a lot of questions. They're like, wait a minute, it's over? I'm looking around, and things aren't any better. I, I've been following this Jesus, and life is still Horrible. Perhaps you're connecting with that statement, those of you who have deconstructed. Um, I was promised a a way of life if I did the right thing and I gave it everything I had, and I ended up divorced, alone, miserable, addicted, rejected. Can't even relate to my family anymore. Like this is how I ended up. So what happened? Was I lied to by you or by God? And so they have these questions. Why has God abandoned us? We did all this for God and it turned out terrible for us. And they're mad at Paul, who they assume is acting like God has decided to, to choose the Gentiles now and to throw away the Jewish people. And Paul's trying to communicate them, no, no, that's, that's not what God was ever doing. Because their question is, are we being replaced now? We've been very faithful. It's almost like the journey was for nothing. Because things are not as I was promised they would be. I've been there, I've felt that. Um, my father uh, worked for a missions organization for 40 years, youth camps and Bible institutes and all this stuff. For 40 years he worked there. And as uh, uh, he doesn't listen to podcasts. Um, and some years ago, um, all the people who planted and grew and created this organization and grew a little bit, they got older. And they got older and older and older, and they got into their late 50s, and suddenly a bunch of Bible grads came in, a bunch of young guys, all hopped up on, like, growth. We're going to grow, 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 right? Consumerism, American evangelicalism, we're just going to grow this thing and bring in all the money, and the whole world's going to see it, and that's how they're going to know that God's good, because we're successful and wealthy. Um, and, uh, and so what they did was, they, they went to all the people who built the whole thing, all the older men and, and women who were there, and they just kind of, mostly men, because it was patriarchal culture, and... And just fired them all. And gave all their positions to young guys. No questions about, about, tell me about your journey. Tell me about what God has done. No questions about any of this. Just, we're done with you now. We're moving on. And I had never seen that, but from the angle that I was seeing it at, I, I, I was just kind of like, oh, they don't even, they don't even have any questions. They don't even, even seem to care. They don't seem to lean in and like, tell me about like, your journey, what do you see God doing? You've been here the longest. Perhaps we should submit to you and, and what you understand about the space. No, it's like we need some new buildings. We gotta trim some, and they do this kind of thing because this is what we do. We want the next thing that'll grow, and, and naturally, the Jewish people here assume, oh, that's what you're doing because that's what always gets done. The big organizations, the temple, they, they've all done the same thing. They don't care about us. They use us for what they want, and then they, they shove us right out the door. And so in chapters 9 through 11, Paul takes that pain that they have and he he spotlights it and he does it in a way that the Gentiles also come in. The powerful, high honor, high status, wealthy Gentiles. The Rome is always the victor and we're Romans. Rah, rah. Like bringing them in with the Jewish people because, hey, I need you to be quiet for a second. We're going to talk to your weaker brothers and sisters, and we're gonna hear their story. You've not been oppressed like them. You've not suffered like them. You've not taken the journey that they have. And you might come in here and your big numbers and your wealth and you think you're ready to take over and do this whole thing, but we need to listen. We need to listen to those who have suffered who are present. We need to hear their story. We need to hear what they've been through. And he gathers them together and in chapters nine through 11, he lays out all the questions Um, Hey, uh, I lost control with the slides, Michael. Can you hit the next one for me there, right there? Thanks, brother. All right. And if you look at what Paul's talking about here, look at verse two. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my my heart for I wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people. He's like, look, if I could lay down and take all the pain away from you, I would. I would take it all upon myself because that's what I saw Jesus do. And I'll do that myself, but I can't. I wish there was a way that I could take all this pain away from you. But, it, but since there's not, we're going to sit down and we're going to expose it to the light and we're going to work on it. We're going to work on all that pain together. In verse 4, um, the people of Israel, theirs is the adoption to the sonship. So now, I picture Phoebe here talking to the Jewish people, but then kind of turning around to the Gentiles. Theirs is the prophets, the patriarchs, the journey, the exiles, the kings, the temple, everything that they have been through. And and it was all for you and you're just walking in and, and, and you've never experienced pain and suffering and now you're in charge of everything. There are so many times throughout history, church history, where this is the story you could tell. The church walking in with such power and ignoring the plight of the suffering and telling them exactly what they should now be doing because they now have the power. And Paul says, slow down. It is them we need to listen to. theirs is the adoption to sonship. theirs is divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship, and the promises. theirs are the patriarchs, and from them is traced the human ancestry of the Messiah, who is God over all, forever praised. Amen. And you can hear all the, all the all the Jews in the room going, "Amen, Amen!" Praying like, finally they're being heard. Finally, someone is calling attention to their pain. If you want to confront any kind of injustice in the world, it starts with simply noticing. A lot of people are very capable of really finding healing and working to make things right once their pain is seen and affirmed and recognized. I see you. That was unjust, and I know it, and I recognize it, and I'm here to help. They may not even really need your help. They can probably do it on their own, but what they need is for you to see and call it out and expose it and say, this has been happening. It can happen no more. Until we recognize the pain that people are going through, we can do nothing to help them. You come in, you see somebody's life, and you're like, oh, look look at all these things that need to be changed, and oh, you're just a big mess, and, and I'm gonna make you more like me. So let's get started on all your sins. No, put your power away. Kneel, wash their feet, listen to what they have to say. Listen to their story first. I remember, um, uh, a CEO uh, talking about, I as I was in some like uh, years, uh, like a decade and a half ago, they always send pastors to these leadership thing because leadership was the most important thing in the church. Not Christ likeness, <laughs> not anything like that. Leadership, right? Because if you're going to grow something, right? Um, but I remember this, like there was a CEO and he was telling the story about this multi million dollar, 2,000 staff company, um, and, and he, they were undergoing this rebrand for, they had new management. And they're like, we can take this to the next level and up and up and to the right. Um, and so they replace, they replace the logo, new branding, new mission statement, all that for the company. And it's all really well done. It looks really good. Spent a lot of money on it. It looks profesh. And, and, they, and, and they get going. But morale among staff is super, super low now for some reason. They can't figure out why. Um, and so finally, the CEO kind of realizes maybe what's going on. And he brings in everybody. He, he rents out an auditorium and he brings everybody in. And on the stage, there is a sheet covering something. And the CEO walks up. He says, hey, so today we're just going to have a day of, of, of just talking and listening. All right? And he, and he takes the sheet, and he pulls off the sheet, and it was their old logo that was on the stage. And he said, I want you to talk to me about what this means to you. And the people, one by one, were going up to the microphone and telling stories of the all-nighters, that they spent with other people and what that meant the accounts that they were celebrating over the years that they had, uh, some of those people had been there since the very beginning when it was in a garage and grew up to this huge thing and, and, and there's these stories of people who worked there and died and um, some people just some marriages were formed there and it's like with the new rebrand and it, it's like they were just taking everything that had been accomplished from that point forward and, and just kind of threw it threw it away and said here's who we are now and they're like but people died under that logo they worked and they built this thing and they died into it. And, and they took a day and they just, they cried and they told their stories and they say after that moment, morale was up and they were able to go because they had been, they had been seen and heard and their pain had been recognized and described and accepted. And at the end of this whole thing, they were able to move forward. Um. And I remember when we bought this building, sort of a very similar vibe kind of happened. We bought this building, and um, do, well, let's see, do I have control yet? Hey, put the next slide up for me. Oh, perfect. So this is, I don't know how many of you are here, you can't even tell what this is, because it's like an iPhone 1. Um, <laughs> uh, so we used to gather in the Springs Theater over here, small little square room, and we, we would get there, Early every Sunday morning, we'd set up all the chairs and make all the coffee and decorate, hang up signs, get ladders out, climb up on the hang signs, and we were just so excited. And when we bought this place and moved over here, there was some people who did not want to come, and they were mad. And I said, what do you like, getting here every week and setting up chairs and making coffee? They're like, yes. I was like, I think I missed something that I should have seen. Talk to me. And uh, I ended up doing sort of the same thing. We gathered here after our first week of being in this room, and I put the picture up on the wall, And some people started bawling. Because to say goodbye to what you had, even if it was bad, even if it was difficult, there is journey and growth and meaning in all of it. That that time is over and that time is gone and you're doing something new, we can't just move on. We have to talk about what happened, what was there, and the meaning behind it all. And so we had a day we had a service where we looked back and I posted pictures of the old space, this one, and, and, and we, we met and we cried. And, and you guys, the role of power is not to take charge and lead. That's not the role of power in your life and anybody else's life. It's not to coerce and make demands. It's not to force people to grow. It's not to drag anyone into some great future. That's not how power works. It's to listen, to understand, and to bring others to flourish. That's the role of power. Power recognizes that if if someone is on top, someone's always gonna be on the bottom. And power says, I choose that. I choose to I choose to humble myself and serve and listen. And so the role of power is, is not what we thought it was. It was revealed by Christ to be something very different. And do you know how many people walk away from church every single Sunday because they 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 feel that the church has never bent their ear to listen to a word that they had to say? They feel the church does not care, it is not a place where they can ask their questions. It's a place where they, where they align or get out. And I have people come up to me and sometimes and tell me, hey, I'm new around here. Um, I, growing up, I wasn't allowed to talk about certain things at my church. I couldn't question faith. I, I couldn't talk about my doubts or creation evolution even or, or, or miracles. I, I couldn't talk about, spiritual gifts, I couldn't talk about social issues, race, abortion, immigration, sexuality, LGBT issues, gender issues, I couldn't talk about any of this in my church, I just couldn't do it, I couldn't talk about it, it was, it was, just, it was all shut down. And I had to fall in line or I had to get out and, and it's not that they didn't want you to talk about it, it's that they didn't wanna listen because it's a threat to how earthly power works but Christ-like power receives it. God includes books like Ecclesiastes, where somebody writes a really angry letter about how terrible the things that God has done are. And he says, that was good, let's put that in the Bible. People are gonna wanna read this because they're gonna feel like this. That's how they're gonna feel. And look, if listening to people of lower status, hearing their stories and pondering their questions and talking about difficult things with them. If that's scary for you, the problem is not that you have a wrong view of people, it's that you have a wrong view of power. That's why it's scary. Jesus constantly says, don't be afraid. There's nothing to be afraid of. Where two are gathered to talk about something very difficult in the name of Jesus, he is there, the spirit is working, the spirit is guiding. Let the spirit lead conversations. Let them happen let people grow and change. The church should be a place where you can change your mind without changing your church. There's no reason that we can't spend the rest of our lives together working through these things. We're gonna go through incredible tragedies together and we need to know that we can trust each other. Life is hard. And it's not if you have a wrong view of power, it's not like it's not completely your fault. If you're terrified of things, like it's not your fault. You were never taught how the power of God works, how it trades thrones for mangers, how it trades swords for crosses and how it lets the spirit work by gathering people around the table, people who, who welcome the spirit there and who tend to the spirit to lead them. Like, please lead us, God. As we gather on the table, as we share this meal, let us listen to the struggles and the questions and the doubts that each other has and spirit guide us. Those who are the healers Activate them to heal those who are the teachers. Activate them to teach those who are the prophets. Let them speak for God into these things. Do your thing. It it is not centered on one man, one woman. It's not centered on any of that. The Spirit of God leads in the church. And oftentimes, in the church, power is in the way. And so we have to learn to get it out of the way and create spaces for people to speak and to mourn and to listen to each other. And so we submit to each other. We listen to each other. We ask the Spirit to minister to each other through the gifts that we have received from God. And I get a ton of emails. I got three this week from people who are deconstructing and are terrified. um, But they've basically gotten the memo that nobody wants to hear their questions and doubts. So gather some Christians, cook a meal, gather around the table, ask the Spirit of God to join you, take communion and talk about it. And look for healing. It's not gonna happen once you're going to have to do this for years. It's not going to happen coming here on Sundays. I was pleased recently to learn that like 85% of you are in house churches. If I were to tell another pastor that, they'd be like, tell us how write a book. I don't know. <laughs> There's not enough people in your church struggling, maybe. At the, end of the day, we, have, we struggle together. That's what we do. And so maybe this section of the book of Romans will be for you. Those of you with questions and, and, and who are deconstructing. Um, and if you've got a story for me that you want me to hear, email me. Um, I'd love to collect deconstruction stories. Uh, Tommy at watermarktampa.com. Even if you're out there listening, send it to me. Make it short, though. Come on. Um, <laughs> like a paragraph. Uh, and I'd love to read it. Um, that's it. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this place and these people. Guide us. Uh, Grow us, teach us, help us to use power in a way that lifts others up and, uh, and not ourselves. In your name, amen. Will you stand with me? Put up the next slide for me, Leo. Here we go, nice and loud. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Grace and peace. Love you all. Have the best Sunday you've ever had.